Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, buddy. I have a great story for you. So, you know when you, you bitch and you moan and complain that you have to do all this Power BI work and you don't get it and you don't like it? Well, then when the match Madness comes on, you can figure out how ESPN does their live scores and you can do a fancy chart. I feel like John White. <laughs> <laughs> And the game here and my own grabs here. It's awesome. So it's fun. Anyways, what are you doing for fun this week? I I feel like there needs to be a little bit of translation there of brackets. And when I first moved here, uh, well, a lot of people will know Jason Himmelstein uh, from the Power BI, Power Apps world as well. He kept talking about these brackets and do I want in? And I was like, brackets for what? And he's like, basketball. I'm like, the NBA isn't in season. He's like, college basketball. I'm like, People care about college basketball here. And so here we are. Only one month of the year, <laughs> at least for me. And what's really funny this year is there's already been a C2 and a C4 yes, team yes. lose and yeah. ruin everyone's predicted bracket. So I just like rubbing it in. I'm assuming your bracket's ruined. Um, it is ruined, but my score is better than the sons-in-law. So it doesn't matter. There, there's our busted worse than mine. So it's all good. <laughs> and a shout out to John and Jason on the Bifocal podcast because I couldn't have fun playing with the bracket stats if they hadn't answered all my stupid questions over the years. So thanks, buddies. And go listen to Bifocal if you need Bauer BI info. Yeah, that's a really good podcast. We'll put it in the show notes. It's a good one. So we've had a bunch of stuff this week. I guess that's what happens when you don't do intros to every show and ship them with just the interviews. The first one is pay attention. March 29th, 2023 at 9 a.m. Pacific time uh, is a new event. Build once, deploy efficiently, connect across Microsoft 365. Um, a bunch of people are going to be speaking that. Jennifer Liu, who's a principal GPM. Rob Howard, who you may or may not remember, uh, moved over back into an engineering role, was my boss for a little bit in marketing, um, and has been working on something internal for a fair while uh, and it's finally seeing the light of day through this event um, in the run-up to build. So super exciting event. It's going to talk a lot about kind of how you can deploying Teams apps across the entire Microsoft 365 suite, including Outlook and in the Microsoft 365 app, uh, which I use quite heavily. It's basically the landing page in my browser every day. And so if you're doing anything with building apps in Teams and Outlook and Word, PowerPoint, Excel, um, this is going to be a really neat thing for you to go see what, what they've all been working on for the last few years. It had an internal code word, I'm allowed to say, um, <laughs> but this is going to be a really cool event. And I think the decision to carve this out as its own event, rather than it get lost in the noise of uh, build with everything that's going on with build at the moment, uh, is a really smart move by the marketing team. So congrats to Ben Summers and folks on getting this, getting this going. So yeah, definitely tune in for that. Obviously it will be available on demand. Yeah, it's going to be a, a big event for us in the M365 developer world that you're all listening on this podcast about too. Yeah, it looks exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to to hearing all about this. Obviously, having stuff in the Teams app is nice to – I'm a target. <laughs> Ichabas, Bass, Rabia Williams, and uh, Bob are also uh, from the Dev Advocate side of the M365 world. We're also part of the event too. So I love the fact that we're kind of bringing – everyone together to present these events now. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So I'm clicking add the calendar right now. It's all good. So another thing that came out recently, by the way, that I really don't know a lot about is Microsoft 365 Copilot. Yeah, so a few shows ago, I said I was really excited about something I couldn't talk about. 
So we got shown this in a all teams meeting. So all of our uh, Jason Henderson, who's our CVP's organization down, uh, they demoed it. And I was like, wow, this looks like it's really far out, but it's pretty cool. And it'd been tented for a long time, which I wasn't aware of at the time. And then this, uh, this event got announced, which came out uh, March 16th. So yesterday for those uh, paying attention in real time. And uh, the Copilot is now available in kind of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, um, so WXP. And it's also available in Teams and Outlook as well. And I actually got to see the chatbot in action a few weeks ago, but I got access to it available in Word Online. And I've been writing my performance review. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We do them every six months. And I was like, oh, I wonder what this will look like. And I always write it in Word because it gets rid of my spelling errors and corrects my grammar uh, before I paste it into this internal HR tool we have. Uh, and there it goes. Copilot starts suggesting how I could change how I framed this particular paragraph and uh, make suggestions on how it could be rewritten to be more impactful. So, but it does a lot more than that. The, the, a lot of the demos, and I'd encourage you to go watch the on-demand of it. Um, it, it does a lot more than uh, the way I've been using it so far. Is like rather than using a thesaurus for suggestions on a word. Copilot can suggest rewriting a paragraph for you. It can do things like if you give it a few words, it'll write the entire paragraph for you. And that was the demos they showed in Outlook as well of like replying to an email and then you just changing it a little bit. And then Copilot will learn from from you. One of the biggest things I've realized is the Copilot doesn't have a dash in it. It's just Copilot or one word. Um, so when you're Googling around for things or binging around for things, that's what you, you need to do. So do I have to install something or does it just show up automatically or opt in? The demos that were shown, it was clear, I think even in the blog post we'll link to, we're rolling this out to very specific customers first to get feedback. And then there will be a more of a clear way through of when these things will start showing up. Um, and so, yeah, the co-pilot will exist in each of those user experiences I just mentioned, but also... Uh, the business chat, the chatbot aspect of it is like another thing that will come through as well. And um, that was really, really cool. Some of the scenarios they use there around plain English asking it when certain, you know, when's my next meeting with Paul? When am I recording the next podcast? And just going and working it all out. Um, and so that's that's quite neat too. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Digging a little bit deeper down in the stack, there's some uh, some geeky things that I found. <laughs> a big surprise, Paul is into the geeks, but um, Microsoft Graph has updates to the to-do APIs. This is a, a couple of weeks old now by the time we're recording this, but at permissions for tasks.readall and tasks.readwriteall. Yeah. So you can start delegating tasks automatically now, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, which I'm sure a lot of people have been talking about, right? So Planner never really had app, uh, app permissions, and I, to tell you, I'm not sure it does now, but to-dos is the same kind of information so good nice to see that finally rolling out so we'll drop that blog post in if you are accessing graphin.net sdk v5 is out this is the lotteric we've had vincent and maisa and daryl on many times (laughs) so a lot of the hard work is finally out so uh, and i thank kudos to them for getting that dropped you can go back a couple shows we talked we had them on to talk about this so with the kyoto product so good job all them yeah, and actually, we just announced the GA of Kyoto too. So they've been, Vincent and Daryl and um, Seb and others have been working really hard on getting that to GA. And uh, already, uh, there's some exciting organizations outside of our org using that tool. 
um, to generate SDK. So uh, I'm you know really proud of what Daryl and Vincent started, and others have now kind of got on to make that a production level set of tooling. It's pretty cool to see what it's done. Still on my to-do list, <laughs> just not enough time in the day. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last link for this week, uh, Viva Connections Toolkit for Visual Studio Code is now in preview. And so I have to admit, I have not yet installed it, but glancing through what I'm seeing here, this seems a lot like Visual Studio Code extension that will help you do the generator the right way for the various pieces, as well as hooks into the CLI to help you deploy things into your dev environment, if you I'd like, I want to say, right? So I wouldn't say this is earth shattering, but if you've been struggling with all the different moving parts, it certainly gets you closer. And so there's a, a YouTube you can watch from uh, uh, Vesa Yvonne and how to get started on that. So keep your eyes open for that. And I'm curious if they'll get a new version of the Viva Connections Toolkit once we have this new event at the end of the month that you were just talking about. So it'd be nice to watch all the different pieces there. Yeah, I need to. I think this one is community built, whereas the Microsoft Teams toolkit, I think, oh, is the yes. yes, is the one that's more targeting what this event is at the end of the month. That, that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, so I suspect yeah, the announcements yeah. that are coming at the end of the month, you'll you'll see a bunch more revolution on the uh, or evolution on that toolkit too. Yeah. So the moral of the story is it may be worthwhile to watch the videos or kick around with the toolkit so you understand what it does. I keep telling the devs who work for me, it's great, but you bet if I have you a question on how it worked, you can't just tell me magic. So you have to understand what's happening under the covers, but certainly worth the... Yeah, it's true. Keep Keep an eye on the... What it's hiding from from yeah, you as a developer. Yes, yes, indeed. So who did you interview? So back uh, last year, I ran into Stefan Bauer when I was at the, the conference in Copenhagen, and we finally got together between illnesses and travel and holidays. So so Stefan came out, and it was great to catch up. Um, we, we talked about, obviously, the latest fluenty things that are coming out of Microsoft, and he's got a, a long background in UI and accessibility. So he talked a little bit about that and his uh, utility. Um, H2O is the, the toolkit that him and Julie Turner have built. So he talked a little bit about that and why. So it's great to, to catch up with him and it's helpful stuff, even if you won't necessarily writing code at that level. Understanding these accessibility issues is always important. So thanks to Stefan for coming out. And good to see you again, buddy. I'm going to go uh, watch my NCAA March Madness basketball turn. I mean, I'm going to go to work now. <laughs> we'll chat next time. See you later on. This week, I'm happy to welcome back to the show, Stefan Bauer. It's been a while, buddy. How you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. Yeah, it was a busy two years <laughs> since, I guess it was in June 2019, the last time I was on. That's almost four years. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Time's running yes, fast. Uh, my name is Stefan Bauer. I'm from Vienna. I'm a designer and developer, but mostly in the design world at the moment. Excellent, excellent. So your know, time does fly because we ran into each other in Copenhagen, which has already been like four months. It's like holy crap, what happened? Yeah, to yeah. But absolutely, nearly half a year. And before we hit record, you mentioned you'll be in Las Vegas. So for the folks who are uh, having, who want to catch up with you, who weren't in Copenhagen, they'll be able to see it right at the at the M three six five conference, right? Yeah, I'm really excited to be, to speak at such a big conference in, in the in the United States. There, I mean, uh, two session about style guides, why they are important for developers and how the business can benefit of style guides, and then I do another session together with Julie Turner, how our workflow looks like working 
the designer and the developer work together. And so we give them a, a demo and insights on stage, how this works in an efficient way. Great, great. Um, but before we get into how you two work well together and what you work on, I'd like to just get your your opinion and your thoughts on on the latest or the current state of how SPFX and teams are doing UI. Specifically, you know, I always ping you when I have trouble with controls don't look right or styles don't look right. So um, the first thing or the question I asked you when we, we bumped into each other was uh, Node SAS or, or CSS and SCSS. So can you give us, you know, again, where are where's SPFX at and why do we use this kind of tool? And he's got a slide grin on his face because I know yeah. he's not a fan of it, but at least we'll educate everyone here. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there are so many flavors. Meanwhile, out there, how developer do styling on the web, it's really every new week, a new framework pops out. Someone likes to, some people like to use all the Java, uh, styling JavaScript, which then will be translated to CSS. Some use other frameworks like Tailwind and so on and so forth. But one of the longest around is SAS. And it's, I think, the most common preprocessor of CSS used in the industry out there. So, I mean, it, it always depends what, what you do. If you build a website, then you might end up using SAS or, or Tailwind or Bootstrap or something like that. When you're more uh, JavaScript developer, front-end developer, and, and use JavaScript frameworks, then you might lean more into uh, using uh, CSS and JavaScript for your development and styling. Okay, and, and so what does that mean? You CSS in JavaScript? What's uh, don't I just, I just don't create a CSS file, right? Or is, or is that the part of the issue? <laughs> no. So 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 basically, your all your styling is sitting next to your JavaScript file. So you write a control, let's say a button, and then you have all the styling in there, uh, just formulated in JavaScript. Because I mean, what you define there is so you set an CSS a JavaScript variable, a JSON file, which says background color, and then assign the color to it, which then could be a variable that is stored in a, in a, in a centralized uh, JSON file or something like that. And when the compiler then builds it out, it compiles it down to regular JavaScript and uh, registers on the page so that your button looks right. So basically, you can do everything in you, you write in a, in a language that is familiar for you as a developer, which is more likely JavaScript than it is, is CSS which is is, an, is a nice way to have this combined. The problem is it's getting pretty hard if you want to use all the features that CSS or modern CSS actually provides you with. Because then you might need to jump through some hoops there, here and there. And it seems like if you want to do the same style of a button on a different page or different control, you have to then copy that CSS over instead of just referring to this. Right? Isn't isn't CSS designed to let me separate these concerns? And I guess that's yeah, the, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so, I mean, the, this, this whole trend comes uh, from from CSS and JavaScript uh, is because the the problem with CSS is you might end up with controls that you don't actually use, so that are. The styling information is on the page, but you don't use it because the, the control that specifically uses the style is not rendered on the page. And so it was more from a performance optimization. Yeah, we render all our CSS with the control so that uh, we only have the CSS registered on the page uh, that is required to render it correctly. That's the idea in there. 
and in the SharePoint world, I know that was a big push for a while was to make CSS and, and JavaScript smaller from the micro, from the SharePoint pages perspective. Right? So I, I can kind of see how we ended up there. Yeah. Right. And so the the SPFX generator creates a SCSS file for me and the fluent UI controls have a bunch of styles that I can pass into it, right? So I, I guess I'm getting both, I get both flavors scaffolded out for me. Am I, am I interpreting that right when, I, when I'm doing a SharePoint thing? Yeah, you're correct. Uh, you get both flavored out uh, with this. I mean, there's also, you can, some people also nowadays use uh, uh, CSS and JavaScript, but what the SPFX generator is coming with is, is SAS, the preprocessor, and another preprocessor, which is named CSS modules, uh, which allows you to really scope the uh, scope the styles to your web part that you write. Because what we had in the in the classic experience, we had the problem that when we registered our styles in CSS and overwrite with master pages and all that stuff, we start completely the page. This is something that Microsoft doesn't want us to do, so they implemented CSS modules in there. So every web part gets a dedicated, unique class assigned to the web part code so that no, none of our styles bleed out uh, to the rest of the page. So that we're in, in some form of isolation there. Yeah, we have a handful of, of new new to SharePoint devs on the team, and and so, somebody deployed something, and and we had blue text on the entire the entire dev tenant. Like, yeah. oh, wait a minute, let's go talk about that. <laughs> yeah, perfect, very good. Having covered all that, the the other thing that I always ask you about is the the fluent controls, right? And I know, I, I guess it, there's been a tortured history of how the fluent. React controls have been decided. So are you up to speed on what the latest versions of Fluid things are and which ones I should use or not use? Or are we we all can I just search and take whatever I find? Yeah, I mean I mean the latest version is now the version nine, which is completely different than it is in the version eight. So we uh, even the upgrade information says, hey, you need to write basically everything from scratch. I mean, there is some upgrade pass from Fluent UI 8 to Fluent UI 9, but I'm not sure why it is reinvented all the time with each version. And this not an evolutionary process, more like so the design tokens have currently changed. And there is also another problem when you use Fluent UI 9 in, in SharePoint. This is not something that you see in, in, in SharePoint these days or in, in, in Teams these days. So they use Teams has a dedicated own set of controls apart from Fluent UI, and SharePoint uses older versions of the uh, Fluent UI controls. So I'm for now, I think it's pretty you're pretty good off when you use just the version eight or something like that. Yeah. So so if I have code that will be running in both Teams and SharePoint. Is is Fluent UI eight what I should do? Because, because so I guess the history of what I remember is Office UI Fabric in SharePoint and North Star in Teams. Yeah. But if I'm trying to to run both, am I gonna have when I have trouble there, or, or should have a different approach? We we need to see this from a little bit different angle. I would say. Okay. Okay. It's not that easy uh, as it seems. <laughs> So just, <laughs> yeah, just use Yotman framework and you're good to go. So there are some things which are a little bit different. I mean, what we have from the SPFX side, we get now the theming information in there if you're running in Teams or if you're running on a SharePoint page, right? So we get a proper theme and all the colors uh, that we then can use in our CSS. Uh, that this is pretty good. The other thing is that you have to understand or what 
people to listen and to understand. Teams is a completely different world because it's an app. On, on the other side, we have uh, the SharePoint side. The SharePoint sites are purely pixel-based at the moment. So all the styling information there is based on pixels. While in Teams, the user interface of a Teams application on iPhone on an, a web device scale is scalable, right? So we cannot use the pixel styling there anymore in, in Teams because someone decided uh, and I got during the pandemic, I got glasses, so I need to have a bigger text there. So I might will <laughs> like to be able to increase the text size on my mobile device to read text without glasses, right? And then you should make sure that your user interface follows the uh, same paradigm so that whenever you embed something in Teams, that it also resizes. This is sadly not yet possible with Fluent UI in those ways. So because they're purely pixel-based at the moment. But other than that, for, from a seeming perspective and styling perspective, you can use Fluent UI pretty well for, for Teams as well. And you get also the right colors in there. Okay, so that, that scalability issue that you just discussed, is, is Fluent UI 9 working towards fixing that? Is that, I mean, do, do we have a hope? Or we don't, I, obviously, I know you don't work at Microsoft, so uh, just curious as to. Yeah, no, I, I had the hope that it was fixed there, but it is sadly not. So still, from my checkings that I did there, it's still pixel-based and doesn't scale with, with what the user has configured on their devices. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. So again, keep in mind, you know, that, that brings up a good point that I, I forgot sometimes. And right. If I, I, I think of a Teams app as a tab and it's just an iframe in my Teams app, but running on the browser, things are all completely, I run, I'm sorry, running on the mobile devices, things are completely different. So thanks for catch out on that. So having said all that, how do you deploy or develop or design pages and solutions for, for people in this world? I created a small framework, uh, which is named H2O. Uh, I did this really on, on a side project. So I, I just wanted to, you know, we're, I'm now developing CSS and HTML for 25 years. It's really a long time. And over time, you get a little bit lazy. So uh, what I wanted to dip into was more uh, accessibility. How do you make your code accessible? Uh, how we can write better code and so that that was the main purpose of uh, uh, to that I created my own CSS HTML framework with controls that look like a fluent UI, which is named H2O. Uh, and in there, when I when I started to develop, I want to have the scalability right out of the box in there. So all the uh, styling information that I use there is one REM. And one REM normally in a in a browser relates to sixteen pixels. So when you have when you install a browser, it's Edge or Chrome or something like that, they always set to 16 pixels. And when the user decides to increase the text size, then these 16 pixels, of course, uh, at 200%, it will be 32 pixels. And the user interface needs to automatically adapt to this changes. So that's just a CSS unit of measure that's been introduced, this REM, right? So I'm, I'm trying to simplify this for guys who like me who love green screens. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it's been around for, for a long time, but it only, uh, I think the last four or five years, people got away from, from the pixel-based styling to REM-based styling, or if there are even newer uh, uh, other units there that you can use for, for certain use cases, but normally... 
when you start now. So there is the relation between one EM and one REM. So one REM means basically it is when you just write a blank HTML page on the paragraph, then it has 16, is the font size is six, set to 16 pixels, which is one REM because it's the root of the document, right? The root EM. And it's really funny how this M is, is defined because in, in typography, so it's the capitalized M which has the dedicated width and height. And this is where it measures to from out of the typography world. Because normally uh, in, in, in most fonts, they're uh, squared perfectly. And that's why I use it. So you have 16 pixels width and 16 <laughs> pixels height. And the other thing is EM is, is, is more context driven. So when you, for example, have increased, when you have a, a diff element where you defined uh, the base font size of two REM, which then means it's 32 pixels. And then I start some element in there, which then uses EM. Then it picks up the, the 32 pixels from the outer container and will everything from there on is the scale is now 32 pixels instead of 16 pixels. So it, it's really proportional. But if I do it right, I guess I don't care, right? Exactly. I mean, if, 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 I'm do, if I'm just using this REM unit of measure, whatever the, the user selects in their browser should just work automatically, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and so, so tying this back now like to, to SharePoint, well, again, Paul's not a design expert, obviously, but what I get from the SharePoint theme is a bunch of colors, right? And, and I don't remember ever specifying a font or a font size when I create a theme, right? So do, I, what I, I guess what I'm getting at is, do I need to worry uh, or should I be changing font stuff in this or am I just using these unit of measures as part of my padding and so on? I mean, you, you can you can use the REM as a unit of measure because the in, in SharePoint pages, for example, it's still 16 uh, pixel because it's outside of the uh, HTML tag, actually. So it, it technically, in technical sense, well, Microsoft and SharePoint always sets the default, I guess, for most pages on the, the default body uh, text size to 14 pixels, which then would be related to 1EM. So, as long as you stick with the REM, you're totally fine. And if you want to, for example, do a padding around something, then use 0.5 REM, and then you have eight pixels all around the container. Yeah, okay, okay. And so now um, you mentioned this H2O is, is designed to help with the scaling there and, and it's controls that look like Fluent. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I, so yeah, I mean, are actually everything I've seen Fluent buttons and pivots and all that stuff, have you, you've recreated them or are you t inheriting them and fixing them or, or what's included in there? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I recreated them all, uh, I fixed them a bit so, uh, like I said, one, one fix it was the, the measures the, in there. And what developers, what I see was working with other developers, the most common HTML element they use is diff, right? Everything's a diff, right? <laughs> Everything's <laughs> is a diff these days. So, and I, I wanted to, to go a little bit abroad and, and see, hey, what else is out there? I knew some of the elements. And so you have the headings, you have the paragraphs, and you have diffs. And this seems like we only have three elements there that people know when they develop website and it works pretty fine, maybe input fields or something like that. So I wanted to teach myself, like I said, doing 20, for 25 years HTML and CSS, I was really looking around, especially driven from the accessibility point of view, how do we write code? How, what is the proper way of writing code? Question yourself, 
what is the perfect element to use this? And it's really an interesting journey uh, to go over all these, these, make yourself wondering what is the best way. So I found out uh, something that we might still know from the old ASP.NET days is the menu element, right? Everything was a menu there and you had controls and then it renders out as a menu. But menu seems like is, is an HTML tag for uh, whenever you have some interactivity in a list, right? So normally you have lists with the bullet points, list entry one, list entry two, list entry three. As long as you only have text in there, then it's the perfect way to use uh, an ordered uh, list or an unordered list. But when you have interactivity there, and even though if you just have a hyperlink in there, then you should actually use a menu. And those are there are so many rules which are uh, from an accessibility perspective are hidden from the developers because, yeah, we always do UL and OL for a lot of stuff. And so I was questioning myself, what is the appropriate HTML element? And then I went back how I started uh, 25 years ago reading HTML specifications and <laughs> what's the best way to do. And there, it's, it's really funny because you find out so many cool things. So there is this dialogue element, which actually provides you with a dialogue, right? So there is no fancy things that you have to do, just put in the dialogue element on the page, which then has an open and the cancel state automatically in JavaScript that you can use, things like that, right? You have out of the box HTML accordion. You don't need too fancy work around it, this works because you have details and summary uh, are two elements that work together. And then uh, when they used, uh, it builds out an, an, an accordion for FAQs and stuff, something like that, which you then can code upon. So knowing all these HTML basics saves you a lot of time when you build something from scratch, right? And there are so many things that I still learn, and this will then be brought back to H2O. So we recently changed a lot of the stuff which were not menus because it was just a diff with an unordered list in there or an unordered list in there. So we changed those back to menus. And it's not so obvious for, for the end user what happens there, but it's I know it's it's a better way to describe for screen readers and, and the HTML element uh, and how it works. You know that's great. So there's a lot from a lot of things that popped into my brain. You described that that was terrific, right? So first of all, most devs are like, I just need to get something out the door tomorrow. So I'm going to grab whatever control looks pretty <laughs> and slap it on my page, and I'm not going to care if it's semantic HTML or accessible. So uh, that's certainly great. And and then so what I'm guessing though is this H2O library you have has you've done all this thinking for me. So if I put it, your menu component, it'll render the menu HTML instead of whatever somebody else or, or Fluence is, is yeah. right? Okay. And now that it, then it, it seems then, so one of the reasons why I would use like an accordion control, for example, is because I don't know how to do the CSS to make things slide up and down or whatever, right? And so again, assumption on my part, you've done all that work for me, right? the, the H2O component or control or whatever it's called, has the appropriate CSS automatically that does that functionality, makes it look good? Yeah, exactly. So the, the easiest way to get started, so we have two flavors. So H2O core is the HTML and CSS implementation that I did, right? So everything style related is in H2O core. So you can go to the website, grab out the HTML, uh, put it on in any React control and then use it in this sense, right? Uh, there is another flavor, which is H2O React, but 
what we do with H2O React and Julie implemented, uh, Julie Turner implemented the H2O React stuff is she takes my CSS, my HTML and, uh, and CSS out of the H2O core and just do the wire up to the React controls so that it become actual React controls that the developer can use for the SPFX web part development. But we have a, a, a separation of concern. So there is one thing when it's styling related, it's in core. And when it's React implementation related, then and what interfaces we provide, this is in H2O React, which means you can use uh, both. You can use the React flavor or you can just use similar like you would use Bootstrap, the H2O core, if you have a requirement for that. And it's not exclu exclusively for for SPFX or SPFX or Teams development, you can also use it on a website, if you like, with, with the theming information. Right, yeah. Not, not sure how many listeners are just creating plain old websites, but like a blog site, for example, right? Perfect, I, I get that. And, and so, again, a lot of assumptions here, you could clarify for me, since, since, you, since you came on the show to talk about this with SPFX, I'm guessing that if I put the H2O core or H2O React in a web part and the user goes and changes the site theme to be a nice pretty orange, everything just works magically for me? Yeah, exactly. This is how it is. So we, we use their, uh, we, so Microsoft has all their theming information in, in a JavaScript object, which we then transform back to CSS. So we do the other way around, similar <laughs> like what the preprocessor CSS and JavaScript does. We take the JSON object and then add CSS variables, put it on the web part, and whenever the theming changes, automatically changes. And it's funny to see because even in React, because we use CSS variables there, uh, you don't even need to re-render the complete user interface just because the values change for the theming. So, so what does that look like when I'm using the controls? Do I do I have to do anything? You said CSS variables, right? So that's new yeah. to me. If I if I'm dropping and obviously I uh, I'm dropping a React component on there, do I need to care about these variables, or is it all wired up for me by you and Julie, and I don't have to think? No, that, that you you don't have to carry about uh, worry <laughs> about this. Uh, it, it's already wired up. So you have one thing that you add to your web part, and then it takes automatically the JSON object from the theme state that is provided and creates all the CSS as variables behind the scenes. Uh, we have it documented on, on the H2O website and you can use it for additional styling if you want to do something different there that is not provided by H2O, which is in most cases the case anyways. And you might end up to use just buttons, but this is all been taken care of already. Okay. So I'm assuming there's something in like on a knit where I need to call into some the context or something, right, to get these variables or yeah. yeah you, get the context, pass it over to a factory, does the registra registration of the CSS variables, and, and then you're good to go. Awesome, awesome. So similar like what is documented in SPFX out of the box, uh, in the SPFX documentation, how do you work with the theming slots? But we have, we take all the themes slots that we have in there while the documentation says, okay, if you just use, use this one, then use this one, yeah. So Teams has a dark theme, a light theme, and high contrast theme, right? <laughs> Which is uh, the least deal with. So, so do your controls work uh, if I'm in a Teams tab? Yes. So uh, okay. on the HTO core website, there is also a, a, on the left side down there, there are some small squares where you can switch through all, uh, I exported all the Microsoft themes. And because we're working with CSS variables, we have 
we you can see how H2O core looks like in dark theme, light theme, high contrast theme, and with all the out of the box SharePoint provided themes. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, so I can preview it right there on the right before and the yeah. automatic you switch on the stars. Yeah, okay. exactly. Okay. So what's next for the library? I mean, do you have grand plans? And and we probably have developers sitting around doing absolutely nothing. So how can they help out? <laughs> yeah, um, looking always for contributions. Um, I mean, it's 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 not only that. Uh, that you have to write code or something like that. It's also that we have a lot of documentation work going on there, right? Because what I wanted to have, uh, have one sing want to have on single place is why the components are built this way. What is the accessibility guidelines that it follows? Where do we get this information from? Or someone, for example, wrote a blog post how to write a more accessible styled dropdown because dropdown elements you cannot style out of the box in the browser yet. This might come in future, but then you write your own control in this way. And there is a good article out there, which I linked in the documentation of this control that I built in there, uh, which describes in a lot of details what actually you need to consider to make it accessible, because it's a complete custom web component in, in this regards. Uh, yeah, and always happy when someone wants to help on the React library or on the HTML core, which is just HTML and CSS, or just come by and take a look how these elements are built out. And I assume we're on GitHub. So what is the, what's the address for folks who want to get started and poke around? So the address is, the, the shortest way there is my.n8d8, with the number, d.at slash h2o. So h, then the word two and the o at the end. And obviously, we'll put these links in the show notes for folks. So, so excellent. Um, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you. Great to catch up again. I won't be in Vegas, so I won't see you there. But uh, I'm, I'm welcome back over to the states and and enjoy the conference. And thanks so much for all your work. And uh, and look forward to chatting again in four years or less. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks.